0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. But let me turn your attention to the word of the prophet Isaiah. I don't want to just focus on what Isaiah has to say, but I'd like to put it in the context of the broader scope of God's word. But if I can read just a few of these passages for you. Actually, Isaiah chapter 53, the context of it begins in chapter 52, verses 13, 14, and 15. And in that section, it says, Behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, the Gentiles. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were told they will now see and what they have not heard they will now come to understand. And so Isaiah says, So who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm, the might, the strength of the Lord been revealed? And his strength is seen in this one who would grow up before the Lord like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, those are just six verses, the first three verses of chapter 53 and the last three verses of chapter 52. But I remember years ago when I was in New Jersey and we had a Friday evening Shabbat service and in through the back doors came in some individuals that were coming to see what was going on in this place where Jewish people were claiming to know Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah of Israel. And we went through our service. And at the end of the service, those individuals had come up to me. And they began to argue with me about my ideas that Yeshua could be the Messiah. They disagreed with me about many of the things that I shared this evening. That's not odd. You know, you, you come on a Sunday morning or next week when we begin our Shabbat service. Everybody leaves disagreeing with me in some way, form, or, or you know, part of the message I may have shared. So that didn't uh, bother me in some respects. But afterwards, we talked more and more. And finally, they said to me, there's just no way Yeshua could be the Messiah of Israel. The way you're understanding God's Word is not the way the Scripture." Was meant to be understood. And so I said, listen, let me just read a passage of scripture to you. Tell me what you think about it. And so I took out my Bible and I began to read Isaiah 53 and I read the whole chapter. I said, so what do you think? And these Jewish fellows, they said, they said to me, what are we supposed to think? I said, I don't know. You tell me, what do you think about the passage? They said, it's talking about Jesus. So what? And I said, Really? You think it talks about Jesus? I'm not so sure, you know. And I figured I'd argue with them. But no, I said, you think so? I said, yeah. And I said, well, that was just from the prophet Isaiah. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, this is the Masoretic text according to the Masorites. This was a, a Jewish publication society Bible. I just read from Isaiah 53. And they said, you mean that's not in the New Testament? I said, no, that's what the Hebrew Scriptures had to say. And they said, you tricked us. I said, I know, I know. (laughs) But nevertheless, you saw what was there without thinking about it. And no one said anything to you about what it might have meant. You read it and you saw Yeshua splashed all over those pages. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that's what God is doing. He's making himself known and his Messiah known splashed throughout all of the scripture. Just so happens, that happens to be a very clear passage for all of us to see. Other passages are just as clear, but they they require a certain context to be understood in, in a manner in which Isaiah is very straightforward about what he's telling us. Now, you need to understand, in the Jewish tradition, this was always understood of the Messiah. I have a book in my library that's entitled, All the Jewish Interpretations of Isaiah 53. And it's a two-volume work, it's a very thick volume. And when you read through that book, you'll find that all the Jewish leaders, all the Jewish rabbis from the first century and beyond understood Isaiah 53 to be that of the Messiah. It's not until the 10th century or so, the time of the Crusades, when Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchaki, comes on the scene of history, and in response to the Crusaders and to the forced messages that would be forced on the Jewish people in their synagogues, in which Isaiah 53 was a common passage to be read and to be presented, Rashi said, oh, no, 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 that's not about the Messiah, that's about Israel suffering at the hands of the Gentile nations. But that's the first time we have an interpretation that is non-messianic in Jewish history and in Jewish thought. Not all the rabbis after Rashi agreed with him. Even some of his contemporaries argued with him that he was misinterpreting Isaiah 53. Today in the 21st century, most rabbis would, would agree with Rashi for much of the same reason. Because we're seeing a proliferation, a growth of Jewish people, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And now I believe, again, particularly in the land of Israel, of Jewish people coming to faith. And when Isaiah 53 is brought to the fore, oh no, no, that's not about Messiah. That's about Israel suffering at the hands of the Gentile nations. Now. Of course, the Jews have suffered terribly under the hands of the Gentile nations. All you need to do is read a cursory history book, and that is presented to us. No one disputes that. The issue here is what was Isaiah talking about, and what did Isaiah mean to convey to us? And to appreciate what Isaiah is saying, you need to have a broader understanding of God's revelation through the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, we can't survey it all, but I'd like to just present to you some things that have come to my mind just recently, actually, as I've been restudying the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And I now realize that in the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, we have the answers to all of life's most important questions. All of them are answered in the first three chapters. A question like, where do we come from? And Genesis chapter 1 tells us we've been created in the image of God. We've been made like him. Our creator has made us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only true God, the only real God, the only God who ought to be worshipped. All other gods are non-gods, and they are figments of the imaginations of various individuals over the course of history. There is only one true God, and he is the one who's been revealed to us through The law, the prophets, and the writings found in what we call the word of God, the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, you want to know where you came from? We know where we came from. We came from the living God. And thus the opening saga of Genesis presents to us God as creator. But that's not all we read about in Genesis chapter 1. We read about God as creator. But we also wonder what it is we are to be about. A second most important question is not only where did we come from, but why are we here? Why even exist at all? And Genesis tells us why. We're to be here to tend the garden. We're to be here to contribute to the Creator's work to the best of our ability. We are to be individuals that are engaged in the good endeavor of building upon what God has blessed us with. This marvelous universe that stares us in the face every moment of every day of our lives. God wants us to contribute to it. God wants us to explore it. God wants us to understand it. God wants us to enjoy it. And so why are we here? We are here for him to glorify him and to enjoy him. And to the degree to which we enjoy his creation, we are enjoying him. To the degree to which we attempt to understand the creation, we are coming to understand a little bit more about him. So why are we here? We are here to glorify him and to enjoy him and the world that he has given us and each and every one of us whom we are to love. As scripture says, we're to love one another. So we know that why we're here, where did we come from? And our third most important question is, why then is the world in such a chaotic mess that it's in? Why is it that we can't enjoy the world the way we would like? Why is it that we can't love one another the way that we should? Why is it that we do not acknowledge the true God as we ought? And Genesis 3 tells us, because we had rebelled against him and as a consequence we became alienated from him and distanced from him and more importantly or more and more significantly and dreadfully we come to our demise he said the day that you eat of the fruit dying you will die and thus all of us are headed to our graves so why is it that the world is the way it is and not the way it ought to be because we have rebelled against God. And in a sense, the judgment of God is being experienced by each and every one of us. Though redeemed, some of us, nevertheless, we still succumb to the judgment that was stated in Genesis. That when you eat, dying you will die. So there are these three great stages, acts, as you, if you would, on the play of history. We see God as creator. We see our responsibility here in this world. Why are we here? We find man has fallen from the goodness of God. And the marvelous thing is that scripture in this third act tells us that God has not left us to our own demise. God has not left us in our ruin. God has not left us to ourselves, as it were, but rather God has done something about our need and our dilemma. He has sent, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, the descendant of a woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. All of Scripture, from Genesis 3 to nearly the end of the Brit Tadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, is all about God's work of redemption. It is that third act that takes up most time and space in all of God's word, his work of redemption. But that is not the end of his intentions. Because not only do we read of God as creator, not only do we read of mankind, humanity, men and women, boys and girls as fallen, not only God is redeemer who is bringing about a means of redemption, but also God is a restorer. And at the end of time, when Messiah comes in all of his glory to reign as king, the world will be restored to the way God had intended it at the beginning. And Messiah's kingdom will dawn. And the restoration fully will be experienced. That, in a nutshell, is what the Bible is about. It's about God as creator. It is about humanity that is fallen. It is about God's work of redemption. And it is about God's anticipation and plan of restoration. That is the, what the Bible is telling us. And the law and the prophets and the writings focuses its attention on God's plan of redemption. Now, in Genesis 3.15, I just want to mention this very briefly because it's something I recently learned and I think it's really quite remarkable. And in that passage... The scripture says that the seed, the descendant of a woman, would come and crush the serpent's head. Now, we know that in Genesis 3 that Moses does a unique thing with the word seed or descendant. Because that word can be both collective and it can be both individual. The word seed can refer to descendants, like the seed of Abraham would be multiplied like the stars in heaven and the sand of the seashore. Or it can be an individual like the seed of David who would be that king that we are to wait for and to look for. In Genesis 3.15, it's almost like Moses chose that word so that there would be this oscillating recognition as you read this passage. He speaks of the seed of a woman, but he doesn't just mean humanity in general. He means a particular seed, a particular descendant that would come and crush the serpent's head. Now, we know that also in Genesis 3.15, I can't demonstrate all this right now, but we also know that there's an oscillating of to whom God speaks. Sometimes he speaks to the serpent that was an instrument and was somewhat animated, we might say, by the evil one. So he says, you will crawl on your belly and eat dust. He's talking to the serpent. Now, I've had some different ideas about all of that, no longer do I think snakes at one time stood upright, had legs, and now they're meant to crawl. I think it's only a metaphor, a statement meant to suggest the debasement and the humiliation that the serpent would experience for being an, um, an agent, for the evil one to introduce sin. Interestingly enough, I recently read in Isaiah 62 that in the messianic age, the snake will continue to crawl on its belly as a sign and symbol to us throughout all the ages of the destructive nature of sin. That's what I think now. And he said you would eat dust. Of course, snakes don't eat dust. They eat other animals. So to eat dust is another phrase that means to speak of its humiliation because of its agency as bringing sin into the world. But then it says that the descendant of a woman will crush your head. Now, that can't be the serpent because the serpent's not going to live for two or 3,000 years or however long Genesis 3 is before Messiah comes. See, if the seed of the woman is Messiah, Messiah's going to crush the serpent's head. But it can't be that serpent in the garden because that serpent's not going to live long enough till Messiah comes. So it can't be the serpent. I never saw that before not silly how do you not see that I never saw it before so now he's addressing the evil one and here's the interesting thing that I recently learned that he said there that the evil one would strike the seed of the woman on the heel but that the seed of the woman would crush his head what I learned is that the same Hebrew word is used for both verbs that the word strike is what's used. He will strike you on the heel, but he will strike you on the head. It doesn't say crush, it says strike. It's the same word. So, whatever striking the evil one will do to the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will do to the evil one. So, what's the point? The point is that both will experience violent blows, death blows. For indeed, if the seed of the woman is going to utterly destroy the serpent, or in this case, the evil one, Satan, the evil one behind the serpent, serpent, Satan, serpent, well, then the striking of of the serpent on the heel of the woman will lead to death, and it will be violent. The distinction is a strike on the heel versus the head, because in the striking of The seat of the woman on the heel, it is something of a less of an effect, although of the same violent nature, because the resurrection will result in him coming to life. But there is no hope or resurrection for the serpent who would be crushed. So now Genesis 3.15 is a much more important passage than I had ever seen it before and why scholars spoke of it as the very first of all messianic prophecies. For it tells us the Messiah would come uniquely from the seed of a woman, not the seed of Abraham, or excuse me, the seed of Adam. That ought to be lodged in our minds as you read the rest of the word of God. Why is it that the seed of a woman would crush the head? Why not the seed of the man? Why the woman? And uniquely, the Messiah, Isaiah, will tell us in Isaiah 7, will come uniquely through the woman, through a supernatural enablement. But on the other hand, the passage tells us, even at the very front end of Scripture, that the Messiah is going to experience a death blow and a violent striking. And now the question is, why? Why? Why would the Messiah of Israel, the seed of the woman who would destroy the work and would destroy the evil one who brought sin into the world, why would he be struck in such a way? And the scripture reveals to us as it opens up to us. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that because of this alienation that man and woman experience, God has to do something to restore them to himself. He has to come looking for, him, for them. Adam, where are you? The first question in the Bible. Adam is hiding. God is seeking. And God provides for Adam. He makes him coats of skin that requires the death of animals. It requires the shedding of blood. And Moses will write, Leviticus 17, verse 10, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. And all throughout the book of Genesis, two things loom in front of us. One is death. And two is the sacrifice of animals in place of those who will die. So Adam and Eve have these animal skins provided, but to provide the animal skins, the animals must be sacrificed. We don't read of that, but it must have happened because skins of animals are provided by God. In chapter 4, you have Cain and Abel. Abel offers up the sacrifice of the sheep of his pasture, and his offering is accepted. Cain offers up the first fruits of his trees and gardens. They are not accepted. Why? Because one is offering what God must have told them he required, a blood sacrifice. And Abel was providing it, Cain was not. When Noah After the flood in Genesis chapter 8 or so, when the flood stops and the waters recede, Noah gives praise to God as the Lord tells him to come out of the ark. The first thing he does is set up an altar, sacrifice one of the animals that he had saved on the ark, As a blood atonement for sin. For after all, the world was just destroyed because of its sin and wickedness, Scripture says. And it's come right up to the very nostrils of God, the Scripture says in Genesis 6. And Noah offers an offering. Abraham is called by God, and in chapter 22, he offers up a ram in place of Isaac, an offering. And if you look at the last verse of the book of Genesis, it speaks of the death. Of Joseph. All throughout Genesis, you read of death and dying. All throughout Genesis, you read of offerings of righteous ones. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. And when Moses comes on the scene, of course, in the Mosaic Law, and he's writing all of this, he explains God's desire for a temple, a tabernacle first, a priesthood, a high priest. Why? What is with this temple? What's with this tabernacle? What's with this altar? What's with this priesthood? What's with this high priest? And what's with this day, Yom Kippur, that the high priest, once a year, only the high priest, can go into the very holy of holies and place the blood of sacrificial animals, the blood of the animal, on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant? What is with this? It's because of what Genesis 3 reveals to us. We are alienated from God. Even those to whom God comes have been alienated by their sin and by the sin of Adam and Eve. And just as an offering was required all throughout Genesis, it's required throughout the Mosaic law. And not only does Moses tell us of Yom Kippur and the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies once a year by one man, the high priest, But in chapters 1 to 5, he tells us of five offerings that needed to be offered on a regular basis. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. And Genesis 3.15, that speaks of the seed of the woman, is telling us that when the Messiah comes, He must provide atonement for sin because these animal sacrifices cannot do the job in restoring us to God the way we need to be restored. You ask, why is that? If God has told Moses to have the tabernacle, the temple, and the offerings, why is it that they don't work? They don't work because our sin is too grievous for something of an animal's blood to to take care of it. If it could be taken care of by the blood of bulls and goats and animals, why must it have been repeated year after year after year, week after week after week, day after day after day? If the sacrifices completely, permanently, eternally removed our sin from us, why does the law tell us it must be repeated? It tells us it must be repeated because it could not take away our sin from us permanently and completely. That's why the promise of the Messiah is told to us. That's why he must experience a striking and a violent death that would shed his blood, that would take care of our sin for all of eternity. That's what Isaiah is writing about. Take a look at Isaiah 53. First of all, in verse one, he says, who has believed our message? Now, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say who has believed my message. Isaiah's talking about our message. Who's the our? The our is all of the writers of the Hebrew scriptures. But they all have different messages, but they all have one message. And the one message they all share is that of the coming Messiah who would deliver us from our sin by shedding his blood in our behalf. Moses spoke of him as a prophet like him. Isaiah speaks of him as a suffering servant. Who has believed our message? Can you get the sense of pleading that he's having with his readers? He's saying, who will believe and trust in our message? Message. The message of all the writers of the Hebrew scripture that focus their attention on the coming deliverer and Messiah and Savior. It's almost like I could hear him say, Would you not believe it? Would you please believe it? Would you trust in the revelation that God has given to us about the coming deliverer? Who among us believes the message? that we are delivering. Notice what else he says. He says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's another aspect to this. Try as hard as you will. You cannot scrutinize all that's written here. This is not about being smart. It's not about being intelligent. It's not even about having the ability to understand the original languages. It's about God's hand of revelation to you. Who has believed and to whom has God revealed himself? If God has revealed himself, if you sense within your heart, you know, I think this may be true. And it's not just because of what you may be saying tonight, but it's because of a thousand things that I can reflect back on you ought not to spurn that working of God's voice in your heart. God is revealing to you. So who will respond to God's revealing of his Son, of his Messiah, to us? I didn't think I would ever be one that would embrace Yeshua. Having been raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, I would never have suspected in a million years I would one day be standing before anyone, and championing Yeshua of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, it 's because God revealed to me, and not because somehow I got it. but when He revealed, I was humbled, and I said, "Lord." make the difference in my life, if you can, (laughs) you know, if you can. So who has believed? And so what is it we're to believe? And Isaiah wants to be as clear as a bell. He talks about him growing up, not the nation, not Israel. He talks about he grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot. Well, that's a phrase right out of Isaiah. We said it this morning when Eleanor, or this evening, when Eleanor lit the candles. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, how's it go? (laughs) I, I don't say the blessing enough. Eleanor, where are you when we need you? From his roots will come forth, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of strength. I've conflated things. And the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold, the fullness of the spirit would rest on this one who would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. So he's telling us that this shoot will come forth when the Davidic dynasty is all but lopped off. And out of a hopeless situation, where can Messiah come from? Where can the son of David come from? The Davidic dynasty is lopped off. There is no descendant that we can take note of. And all of a sudden, a little shoot is going to come forth. And that shoot will not be noticed because this is not a grand tree. It's just a shoot. And so he says, he'll come forth like a shoot and he'll have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He will not appear the way he really is. He's gonna come in a fashion that we will naturally dismiss because he's coming at a time when he's coming to die and to suffer, not at a time to reign and to be acknowledged and glorified. He's coming at a point of humility and time to experience humiliation. And that for you and I by his grace. This is what Isaiah is saying. And he gets further into it. Not only does he say, will we not recognize him because he comes in a manner we don't expect, but then we don't treat him well. He says we despise him. We reject him. Indeed, he's a man of great pain and sorrow. And look at this. One who is familiar with suffering. One who will experience agony of a kind you and I would never imagine. He tells us that he is one from whom men would hide their faces, be embarrassed to be identified with. One who would be despised and not esteemed as he should. But in verse 4, something changes. Because in verse 4, now there's an acknowledgment There's a confession, as it were. Look what he says now. Surely he took up our infirmities. In other words, Isaiah now is telling us why he experienced the suffering and humiliation that he experienced. We could say Isaiah is now telling us why he would be struck with a violent blow as Moses writes in Genesis 3.15. He's now explaining to us the reason for his suffering and for his turmoil. And the reason is he's taking up our infirmities. Try as you will to somehow dilute the meaning of this phrase and you cannot do it. He's talking about substitution. He's talking about taking up our sorrows. The phrase is like bearing a burden. He's carrying them for us. Now, those that would say, oh, this is Israel. Is that really true that Israel and suffering at the hands of the Gentiles' nations carried our infirmities, actually bore our sin and our own suffering? No one says that. They bore their own suffering, to be sure. But Isaiah is telling us this one is taking up not his sufferings, but his infirmities, but our infirmities. He's carrying our sorrows. And yet, he says in verse 4, while he's doing this in our behalf, we thought that he was stricken by God. We thought God was striking him. But Genesis 3.15 tells us that he was being struck for us. And we're told that he would be pierced for our transgressions that he would be crushed for our iniquities that the punishment that would bring us peace with god has fallen on him it is for our benefit that he endured such things is what isaiah is telling us for well, look at verse 5 by his wounds we are healed our problem is we don't realize how sick we are we don't realize how needy we are spiritually particularly but not exclusively we are in great need but we don't realize it i don't really realize it and you know individuals that go to a doctor and they feel perfectly fine Years ago, when I, five, six, seven, I don't know, I lose track of time, eight years ago, when I went to the doctor, I said, I feel, Mary, they're saying, you gotta go to the doctor. You never go, go to the doctor. I said, okay, I'll go. So I go, and I said, Doc, I'm feeling great, feeling fine, I don't feel anything. They took my blood pressure, and it was like 140 over 90 something. She said, that's not good. You know, you shouldn't be feeling too good. Well, I was so used to feeling that way that I didn't know what it was, felt like when your blood pressure is right. You know, so I got used to the dizziness, you know, I got used to not feeling the way that I could feel. So he put me on some medication. Lo and behold, it's, you know, it's like 117 over 70 something. And then the other day, my doctor here said to me, you know, Gary, why don't we try taking you off the medication? merrily said to me, I never heard a doctor doing that. Never heard a doctor doing that before. I said, well, he did. So I took it off. And the second day, 190 over 140, 140, sorry, 140 over 90 something. I said, wow, you know, that went up. Then I took the medicine and it went back down again. You know? So I guess I can't come off the medication. But I didn't realize how sick I am. I didn't realize that, you know, anything can happen. And a stroke can occur. Someone said to me, Gary, you should be really concerned about that. You know, God uses you to speak the truth of God. You get a stroke and you can't speak, you're done. And cool. maybe start thinking, you know, I better take care of myself because I enjoy doing this as much as God has called me to do this. But that's happened to all of us. And now Isaiah is telling us, like a doctor's report, we have a need for healing that you and I don't generally recognize. But Isaiah is telling us, by his wounds, we are healed. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. There's the necessity of blood again. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Look at this in verse 8. He was cut off. That's a phrase in the Hebrew Scriptures, meaning he died. He was cut off from the land of the living and this for the transgression of my people. Well, it can't be Israel. can't be Israel, right? In verse 8. Because he's suffering for my people. So it can't be my people are suffering for my people. It is the Messiah who is suffering for his people, Israel. That's why more than anything else, we want to see the Jewish people hear the good news, because as Isaiah says... His, transgress- his suffering was for his people. Not exclusively, but here it's focusing on Israel, the Jewish people. And now I see my, myself in there. He died for me. And he dies for you. And it was for our transgression. Look what it says in verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him. You got all these Genesis 3.15 words here. And to cause him to suffer. Look at this in verse 10. He becomes a guilt offering. That's a sacrificial offering. His blood's being offered for us. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. That's what Yom Kippur teaches us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Recite as many prayers as you want in the machzor, and Recite all of the sins you can name. And you will not come even close to expressing our sin. You and I don't even know probably 90% of our own sin. We need an offering that will cover our sin for all of eternity. Isaiah is telling us this is the one we're to look for. This is the prophet like Moses. And look what he says. But though he would become a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. How is that possible? How does one who dies then sees? That can only happen if somehow he's brought back to life. It's like like Abraham. We sang about him today. We spoke about him last week at Rosh Hashanah. But when he offers up Isaac, he says to his servants, my son and I are going to go up the mountain. We will worship the Lord and then we will come back to you. But God told him to offer up his son. He was ready to kill his son. But yet he knew somehow God would have to preserve his son because of the promises that were made to Abraham about his son. In this one shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In this one shall your descendants be multiplied, Isaac. And so now, just like with Abraham, his son was, as it were, brought back to him from the dead, for he was ready to kill him. It took the angel of the Lord to say, Abraham, Abraham, don't slay your son. Otherwise, he was doomed. Here, this one, we are told, the Messiah, the suffering servant, would die but would see the fruit of his death. For many would embrace him. I pray everyone in this room will be among those who would embrace him. Look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Well, that seems pretty clear. Of course, the rabbis always believed in resurrection. One of Maimonides' statements of faith, that we believe in the resurrection of the dead, as well as we believe with perfect faith in the coming of Messiah, and though he may tarry, we will wait for him. And as a consequence of the work of Messiah, in our behalf, verse 12, it says, Therefore I will give him a portion with the grave. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death. He accounted himself among sinners, transgressions. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Well, now when you read this passage, you can see why those individuals that came into our meeting back in New Jersey said, it's talking about Yeshua, Yeshua, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is what it says about him, what he has done for us. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see this. It simply takes one with an open heart and an open mind. It only takes one who's willing to humble themselves and say, Lord, I do see this. I can't believe it, but I do see it. And in some sense, perhaps I don't even want to see it, but I do see it. And so, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. And God who is loving and kind will always be merciful to you and I. doesn't matter to what degree you are a sinner or to what degree I am a sinner. His grace and his blood reaches down to the worst of us as it has transformed many to be the best that they can be. Well, this Yom Kippur, and I know this may be sort of a strange Yom Kippur observance here at Beth Ariel, but our focus is on Messiah of Israel, our great high priest who gave himself that we might have a life in him forever and ever. Please don't miss out on what he's offering you tonight. Let's pray. Our God and Father, and whoever is telling John that we're uh, getting ready to blow the shofar, if they could tell them so our kids come and we make sure they're here. But Father in heaven, we thank you for your marvelous grace. It reaches to the ends of the earth and to the uppermost regions of the heavens themselves. And it reaches down to the most needy among us. And so, Lord, we are grateful that on Yom Kippur, we can reflect for a moment on our need. And we can reflect for a moment on the grave consequences of our actions and our state. For the wages of sin is death. And by disobeying God and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you shall die. And the record is clear. Indeed, all who are born do die. But the record is also clear that one would come and experience a violent blow that would characterize him as a man of sorrows, as one who is so marred and disfigured we did not recognize him, as one who would carry our sorrows, as one who would be a guilt offering in our place, but also one who will see the light of life and will see all of those who would trust and have, have faith in him and respond to Isaiah's beseeching who has believed our report. And that day will come when Messiah will return And he will come as the glorious Messiah and Savior and Redeemer. And when he so comes, every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that indeed here is Messiah of Israel, here is the King of all kings, here is the Son of David come to reign in whom we will always rejoice. But first he must come to provide us with an antidote to our ill spiritual health and provide an atonement for sin. On this Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, we rejoice in the atonement you have provided. We worship and praise you for your marvelous grace. May your spirit work on each and every one of our hearts. For those who do not know you, Father, I pray you would open their hearts and reveal yourself to them. And for those of us who do, may you equally open our hearts and enable us to be submissive and obedient to you as we ought. We pray these things in Yeshua HaMashiach's name and Messiah. His name we pray thank you for listening to our message we hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the lord and your service to him do remember us in your prayers and if you are able to provide a financial donation to beth ariel with a large or small would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry you can donate online through our website at bethariel.org, that is spelled b-e-t-h-a-r-i-e-l dot org